Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Leadership File on Premier. Welcome to The Leadership File, conversations that change the way you lead. I'm Andy Peck. You'll be familiar with the maxim, change is here to stay, something that should be true for us all as we progress in our faith and indeed for the local church, as it attempts to meet the challenges it faces and works to maintain momentum as members die, move away, and new people come. But in many churches, change is rare. They may have known a time when they grew, but have now reached times when numbers plateaued. The services remain much the same at the same time, and the midweek programme seems to be set in stone. This week we're going to focus on change and what might be done to help make sure that a growing situation doesn't quickly become a stagnating one. I welcome back Marcus Honeyshet, the founding director of Leading, Living Leadership, which is celebrating 10 years as a charity. So welcome back, Marcus, to the Leadership File. Thank you, Andy. Maybe, maybe we could start by describing the kind of churches that might be in mind when it comes to uh, Plateau. It, I guess it could be a church of any size. Uh, yes, it could be a church of any size. I think you see churches that go from naught to 40 and Plateau, uh, or 80, 150, 250, 500. I was chatting to a leader of a church of 1700 recently that's been 1700 for 40 years and he's saying well how do we get off our plateau? I think it's interesting to see churches hit plateaus when they are going pretty well and full as well as ones that have run out of steam. When a church is good and full and buzzing but right at the outside limit of the doable then it's pretty common to move into maintenance mode at that point and to just deliver what's attracting people. And that becomes change-resistant quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, and what are some of the foundations for bringing change in a church? I think um, the foundations for bringing change in a church are quite different from bringing change in other kinds of organisations. Uh, so if you read change management literature written by Christians, it tends to just baptise change management literature from the world. But the reason that we want to change things is to keep a church on track for mission, community, disciple-making. And that's not what secular organisations are into or business practices into. I think we need to ask the question, how does our church need to change in order over the next five years, ten years, to better magnify the supremacy of God in our area and the world and our lives? And that tells us that as Christians and as churches, we have a different starting point to other organisations. We have a different goal, the glory of God. We have different methods. We have different motivators to change than any other kind of organisation has available to it. Now, you'll have heard the the off-quoted stat, if the church is uh, 80% full, it won't easily grow unless something changes. And I'm just, just be interested to have your perspective. Is that really true? Is this... Is this a reason for stagnation? You know, we've we've got the building is our problem. 
Yeah, you do hear that quoted. I'm not a statistician. Observationally, I think that's true. I think that the size of our buildings does define people's missional imagination, if I can put it that Mm. way. If your building is full, you're likely to be content that some kind of vision is being fulfilled. It's interesting. If you look at church buildings that were built in the 50s in the UK, they tend to be built for between 200 and 250 people. If you go 150 years before, they were all built for between four and 500 or more, which tells you something about the vision that people had Mm. when they built them. But on the other hand, if your building's full, um, then you're probably going to have relational connectivity at a maximum stretch. If your building's full, it's going to be harder for people to come and join you fresh because they're going to arrive for services and families are not going to be able to sit together. Um, But I think the main reason when your building is full is that everybody thinks things are going really well, so there's no incentive to really do anything differently. You think, let's have what we've got at the moment. It's great. Not, what does the Lord want us to be doing in in five or ten years' time? And your leaders are pushed, your organisations are full, there's no incentive to think, what next? Why bother? Sure. And and part of the the problem is, of course, that uh, you, you may, you know, you may be full, but you, percentage-wise, you're still often a very, very small percentage of the community in which God has placed you. I mean, there's still tons of people who are not at all aware of what you're doing. Well, indeed. So one question I'd want uh, listeners to ask themselves is uh, what percentage of your area has a connection with a Bible-believing church? I seriously doubt in any area of the UK that's more than about 5%, very few areas. What would that look like if that went from 5 to 10% over the next few years? Um, well, it would certainly mean all the Bible-believing churches doubling in size. What would that mean for you? What are the implications mm-hmm. for the way that you need to pray to the Lord about the future? Uh, in your t- 10 years as um, directing living leadership, um, you've worked with pastors who serve in churches that have stagnated, I'm sure. Um, why do they say that things have plateaued? What would, they, what would their understanding be of the situation? I think there are a whole variety of things that, uh, that go under that. So um, favourite activities for Christians becoming the, the raison d'etre of the church and losing mm. your, your mission and your evangelists. Um, and then stopping those favourite activities being very difficult. Um, so effectively, what you've got is a chaplaincy for Christians. That would be a mm. um, that would be a, a fairly normal reason. Uh, structural inertia. Um, we're unable to adapt for a fresh period. Vision inertia. Uh, leaders who don't have clarity of purpose or unable to communicate it in such a way that it's embraced by everybody. Uh, maybe folk who for a period have felt unwilling to lead because they get resisted or not supported or unable to lead because the pastoral demands are just so high that they never get the chance for fresh wisdom and direction. Uh, Leadership for change flows out of wisdom and wisdom so often flows out of space to seek the Lord and good counsel. So I fear that churches will hit plateaus when that doesn't happen. Plateaus are essentially paralysis. Paralysis um, demotivates change. But it can happen when things look really positive and good. So if you take um, a leader uh, came to me recently, he has a church 650 that he has built pretty much exclusively on his sole leadership gifts. He's a really vibrant, good leader, hasn't built a team, but is now in his mid-50s, running really hard just to stay still and keep satisfying the demand that he's built and everybody has colluded in. 
and says, well, I would love now to build a team that takes it on after me and beyond me and grows it from this point. But it would mean me dropping things that people think are A1 priority and I don't think I've got permission to do it. So I'm way off being able to do that, but it's starting to drain me. Now, at that point, you've got a plateau. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the things you didn't say, interestingly, was um, that things have plateaued because because of secularism and because of you know people are not open to the gospel in the way that they used to in our land. That there's things are getting tougher. I, I, I don't know if that you, you people say that or that's because, frankly, you don't believe that. <laughs> I think that things are getting tougher, but I don't believe that anybody is any less open to the gospel. Right. Um, I think that that's a bit of a media myth hmm. and that it's possible to buy into that. I think that people are um, expressing their lostness differently, hmm. and I think that they are asking questions differently. And we're certainly living in a cultural situation that's very rapidly changing. And there are challenges there for generational change in churches hmm. and embracing fresh ways of doing things in a more hostile environment. But I don't think people are spiritually any less interested. I think uh, a church with uh, the Bible being well preached and applied to lives where there's transparent, open community, good worship and discipling of children is very likely to see um, healthy growth. Now, if you compare that with churches where that's gone off the boil, you're, you're bound to see shrinkage in those kinds of places because what's attracting people is missional vision. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, some have argued that the, the the problem is the pastor or whoever, whatever the person goes by that name in, in, in the local church you're part of. They say there are small church pastors and large church pastors and that some people just build things up in a, as a kind of a shepherd of a small flock and they can't get beyond that. Um, I find it hard to justify that biblically, but what, what do you think? I've heard it put quite like that. Um, I do think that there are people who are gifted for different relational spans. Um, Some people are great with uh, 20 other people. Some are great with 100 other people. In the Old Testament, there were leaders of tens, fifties, and hundreds. So I don't think I have difficulty in principle with the idea that somebody might lead a small work uh, very well and might lead a larger work less well because they've stepped outside their spiritual gifting. I think one of the One of the benefits of a story like Gideon, for example, where God says, go in the strength you have and rescue Israel, and he gathers 32,000 people. And God says, no, um, we'll whittle that down to 300 and take away all the weapons, is that there are some things that God is only going to do through small communities. Um, So I would much rather somebody who knows that they could lead a church of 250 but would struggle with a church of... 500 or somebody who can lead a church of 80 but would struggle with 150 get to 80 and plant another church don't move outside your gifting in that regard it might be that god's given you some very specific things to do precisely because you're small Uh, fair fair enough um is it i mean is it structures that inhibit relationship uh, and therefore growth i mean do some decision making structures you know can facilitate cute and wise adjustment and that means that change takes place, whereas other structures, people just get fed up. It takes forever to do anything, and therefore there's just that sense of, of inertia from that. Yeah, churches grind to a halt for all kinds of reasons. Uh, one of them is capacity, and where you accrete activities and needs up to the point that your structures can't cope with it anymore and your resources are all expended. I think in many churches you do have one or two ministries that essentially become resource black holes. 
So it's quite common where you get a very vibrant children's work. People will move into the area, they'll come to your church if they've got families, and the number of children increases far more than the number of adults able to deal with it. So it sucks in more and more resource until you reach you reach capacity. And at that point, looking at structures very carefully to facilitate change and growth is clearly vital. But you've also got to look at that point at how to develop leaders proactively to need for the next stage. It's why churches grind to a halt when things are going well, because you've actually reached the outside edge of the doable with the current capacity you have. There's probably a giving question lying underneath that as well. Indeed, indeed, yes. Well, you're listening to Leadership Vault with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Marcus Honeyset, the founding director of Living Leadership. We're talking particularly about change, and we'll be back just after this. Welcome back to the Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Marcus Honeyset, the founding director of Living Leadership. It's celebrating our 10 years as a charity. Marcus has been helping our church leaders to think strategically about uh, about their walk with God and also particularly about how to lead uh, their churches uh, with a concern particularly for that uh, churches are vibrant, that they're missional, that they're reaching their um, potential under God. And we're looking particularly at what happens when, when things kind of reach a bit of a stalemate when things plateau what some of the reasons for that might be and uh, how to uh, how to move things on um, <clears throat> of course it's, it's true to say Marcus that sometimes churches may decline in number because the incumbent is preaching the truth and the members don't like it it may be sometimes necessary for a church to decline as a preparation for growth uh, yes I think that's true um, the 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 absolute main foundation for growth and change is the right spiritual conditions. Uh, organisational change in churches starts with spiritual roots, roots of godliness, spiritual perception, hunger for God, which means that gospel-oriented change emerges out of gospel-oriented convictions about God and ourselves and the church and its purpose. Uh, unless the reality of God and the purpose of the church grip us, then people won't budge. Uh, and that means that when, uh, it, if you've got the immovable force of God's word being preached, uh, meeting, what's the other one? Not yeah. quite sure. <laughs> the, the immovable object. You, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort, sort, that, sort, sort that out for me. Yeah. Then sooner or later, if you're trying to bring from the scriptures a purpose-centered, gospel-centered ecclesiology, and people don't like it, then, yeah, you might well see people start to leave at that point. They don't like the truth being preached. Of course, you do have to be careful. If people are leaving because of your preaching, it, it doesn't have to be they don't like the truth. <laughs> it could be they don't like you. Yes, indeed. Or they think you're boring. So you do need to be pretty self-aware uh, about that kind of thing. We'll be back just after this. Welcome back to Leadership Fire with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week. Marcus Honeyset. So, Marcus, what do leaders bring to the table that helps change come about? Well, I think the first thing that uh, leaders bring are their own lives, their role models in the process of change. Change is going to um, cause people to move from the comfortable to the uncomfortable. It's going to introduce ambiguities into their lives. So the leader, first and foremost, is the person who is helping everybody else align people to Jesus and to his purposes, which means that... Um, yeah, people need to have a clear view of Jesus and a clear view of people who are sacrificially following Jesus so they know how to do it. I guess another thing that leaders bring to the table is that we're the ones who clarify uh, need, 
um, with future vision. Uh, leaders put in front of people a concrete vision of a preferable future. That's what motivates change. If you put in, people, in front of people a, a vague view of a less preferable future, then they're never going to change because they like what they've got at the moment. So, yeah, we're focusing cooperative teamwork. We're smoothing transition with wisdom and all the affection of Christ. And like it or not, leaders are like lightning rods as well. So we're the ones who take the angst that goes with change and we absorb it. And we try to minimize future distress and disturbance with prayerfulness and compassion and kindness so that uh, people find it easier rather than harder to say yes to change. Okay. Uh, and, and I mean, your work, Marcus, aims to support church leaders. I mean, some f- face burnout because they've sought to affect change and have found the church or maybe fellow leaders resistant. Um, yeah. Uh, should a leader keep pushing, confident that they'll get there in the end? To have change happen, you you essentially need three things. You need personal capacity. Um, if you just are exhausted all the time, you'll never lead through change. You need team capacity and you need uh, trust and credibility in the people that you're trying to lead through it. You can never lead where you don't have trust and credibility to lead through change. And I think that you see two kinds of change um, that leads leaders to burnout. So you see the kind of change that must happen. They're exhausted, that they're at the edge of the doable. They know that things must be renegotiated or it's going to kill them if they don't renegotiate. And at that point, you've got a straight choice. You have to push through. You have to renegotiate or you leave. But many other kinds of change in church actually you don't have to do straight away, and you should never try to push beyond what you've got the trust and credibility to do. Uh, you know, do we do we change the times of our meetings? Do we change the, the the worship content? Do we change this, that, or the other in church life? Is all a matter of trying to discern how to build the trust and credibility in your leadership. Uh, before you try to push through on that. Otherwise, you find people pushing back at you and confusion and criticism and fighting change. So I think the key question really is discernment. It's how do you discern what must be changed uh, or renegotiated or it's game over? And what actually can we work at piece by piece, gradually building stakeholding trust and credibility? Uh, it's far better, I think, to go slowly and steadily at those things so that when uh, when you do change things, everybody is coming with you. Right, right. Um, but presumably there is there is a point when you, you, a leader will sense the church isn't going to budge. This, this matters too much to me. Um, you know, and from an integrity point of view, I cannot carry on leading because my, my heart is, is so invested in this kind of church life and, and God is you know, clearly leading me that, that I've got to back away. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, Those are agonizing times, um, but the point at which your integrity is on the line is a point that you really do have to ask pretty serious questions, isn't it? I think the difficulty under those circumstances is that it's often very subjective. You're often in it on your own. You agonize about it. You lose sleep over it. um, And it's quite difficult to get external wisdom. Under those circumstances, I think the best thing is just to surround yourself with a multiplicity of wise counselors from outside the situation who won't just tell you what you want to hear, 
um, who will feed you and feed into you and help you make decisions that aren't just completely subjective and in the company of your own head. But yeah, if integrity um, is in question, then sooner or later you're going to have to ask questions about whether you move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've mentioned the fact that you're you're you've been ten years as in living leadership as a charity. Uh, your, have your approach has changed over time? Looking back, I think our essential vision is still the same. Our strapline was always training and sustaining biblical leaders, uh, but. I think probably we're a little more focused now than we were. What we uh, want to do is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. Um, He's in prison. He's writing to them. He's saying, I think that I'm going to get released because the Lord wants to be gracious to you in the church in Philippi. And when I come to you, I want to work with you for your progress in the faith and your joy in God your progress and your joy. That really is the heart of disciple-making as far as we're concerned, working with people for their progress and their joy. And probably the focus that's come to us is that if we want leaders who do that with churches, then it's critical that leaders get discipled ourselves. Um, No joy in God, no good leadership. And if you're constantly working with others for their joy, but nobody's doing that with you for your joy in God, then uh, sooner or later you're going to burn out on that one. So one change for us is that, uh, yet we always talked about training and sustaining biblical leaders, but now much more we want to talk about discipling biblical leaders, walking alongside, making sure they have really good worship and prayer lives and, uh, and are enjoying God because everything finally flows out of that center. Uh, and you're expecting, of course, that, that there'll be leaders who, who recognize the kind of language that you're saying and aren't locked into the kind of professional mode of I'm doing this job uh, and all is well because I'm the, you know, the leader and the pastor. You know, I remember a leader saying to me a little while ago, um, uh, I just got a nagging feeling something's not quite right. I'm doing uh, great ministry, uh, training other leaders. It's just that uh, I'm not at all excited about Jesus and haven't been for a number of years. And I just wanted to stop him at that point and say, what what definition of good leadership is that? If there's uh, if you have just defaulted to a professionalism or a grinding it out week by week um, and are not leading out of a heart that is alight with Jesus, then I want to suggest to you that you're at a, a really critical point for reevaluating that if you're, you're prayer life, your worship life, uh, your fasting, if, if, if that's at a low ebb, the chances are that what you're doing isn't noticeably Christian leadership. It's, it's moved into some kind of professional mode that is no longer spiritual and is no longer biblical. You might be communicating perhaps accurately, but, but here's the thing for those of us who are preachers who... Um, get into that kind of mode you know you can you can say true things with your lips from the bible and you can give the lie to them with your life so worshipless leaders ought to be a contradiction in terms because what happens is that we say true things and we think that that's okay despite the fact we're not having any current experience of the blessing of god no experience of the value of the blood of jesus to me today and no experience of You know, somebody said to me, um, what's God doing in your life at the moment? I don't have an answer. If that's you and you're listening, then the Lord is saying to you out of this broadcast, it's time for you to take a really serious look at that. 
Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, and your dreams for the future as living leadership? Um, oh, um, far too long a list to uh, <laughs> share on the radio right Understood. now. One of the things is that we're praying to the Lord that he will show us how to regionalize and multiply our pastoral refreshment conferences for leaders and spouses. We'd love to go from the 200 leaders from uh, 150 churches at the moment to uh, to 2,000 over the next few years here and abroad. And... Um, yeah, all kinds of other things. The wish list is as long as your arm. Understood. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, bless you for, for your insights today, Marcus. Thank you so much. And for, um, you know, may, uh, there'll be listeners listening for whom change is a key issue and uh, your wisdom will be much appreciated by them. So thank you. So listening to the Leadership Fire with me, Andy Peck, I was joined this week by Marcus Honeyset. He's the... Uh, founding director of living leadership do go to premier's own website www.premier.org.uk and you can find archived versions of a leadership file including this one in due course i look forward to your company again next sunday at 3 30 thanks for tuning in you've been listening to the leadership file on premier andy peck serves as a tutor at cwr a christian charity whose courses and publications aim to apply god's word to everyday life contact him via email apec at cwr.org.uk 